0: Well, if you would look with me in Titus chapter 2, we've already been reminded of the grace of God this morning in the baptism of Pierce Fields, uh, but here we see it in the text. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled. That word is found five times in this letter. You think it's important? Upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's one of the great affirmations of the deity of our Lord Jesus, God, a very God, who gave himself, God giving himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. This statement is so important. Here's what Paul says in verse 15, declare these things. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a saving God and that only... Is the only way to make sense of the fact that we can approach you this morning and would even desire to approach you because you have reconciled us to yourself in your Son, Jesus, applied by the Holy Spirit. Lord, today as we come to a passage that is not often preached at Christmas, but a passage that is very clear on the advents of our Lord Jesus, we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would stir our minds, our affections, and our wills, that we may love you more. And we pray if there's any who are listening to this message who have not bowed the knee to King Jesus, I pray you would woo them by his glory and by their need for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In World War II, Ernest Gordon was a, a British British uh, captive to the uh, Japanese in the Japanese prison camp by the River Kwai in Burma. Uh, That's where the POWs were were forced to build a railroad so that the Japanese soldiers could have a a way of transportation to the front lines of the battle. And these POWs were, were starved. They were tortured. They were worked to exhaustion. Some sixteen thousand soldiers or POWs died during that time, and, and Gordon wrote about that uh, in his book *Through the Valley of the Kwai, which later made it into the movie *To End All Wars*. He, he describes uh, in this book one time when, at the end of the day, after they had numbered or counted the, uh, the you know the 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 different kinds of tools that were being used to build this railroad, that a tool was missing. And so the soldier, one of the guards, lined up all of the POWs and said that the guilty party needed to step forward and take his punishment. Well, no one confessed to that. And so he, he told the POWs he was going to kill every single one of them. All of a sudden, one man stepped forward and confessed to stealing the the tool, and the guard killed him. Well, after his friends carried him away, they recounted the tools, and they learned that none of the tools were missing. This man had died so that the others would not have to. Now, now imagine the effect that had on Ernest and his fellow POWs. An innocent man died so that they could live. Ernest on his part spent the rest of his life seeking to honor the one who had died in his place. Now, with that being said, even that remarkable story falls short as an adequate illustration of the reality behind Christmas, the first advent. Because unlike the situation with those POWs, we don't face death from a fellow sinner. What we face as sinners is the righteous threat of wrath from a holy God. And in our case, the shovel is missing and so are a whole lot of other things. We're guilty of sin, and we are deserving of punishment. But what we celebrate at Christmas is that the innocent one, God the Son, God of very God, the eternal Son of God, stepped forward to die for us. And just as this POWs substitutionary death, moved his fellow prisoners to honor his great act, Paul says believers in the Lord Jesus Christ also have a responsibility in God's plan to honor the glory of God in the person and work of the Son of God who came forward and died so that we don't have to. Now, he calls this, notice in verse 10 of our passage, Just before we get into verse 11, he calls this adorning the doctrine of God our Savior. That's our calling. In fact, that word to adorn is the word cosmosin. It's where we get the word cosmetics. We are to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And so now he is going to give us two major incentives for doing so to adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The first incentive is the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ, and the second incentive is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in the second advent. The first motivation we see at the very beginning of this passage is the the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ motivates us to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. In a very real sense, that's the reason we are left here after we are converted. We have one purpose in the end. It's to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. And and Paul says the first incentive is his saving grace. Notice with me in verse 11. He says, "...for the grace of God has appeared." Now, that word for tells us he's continuing his thought from the previous passage. And in that previous passage, he addresses every group represented in the church. Notice in verse 2, older men. So he goes after the older men. I don't know what age that is, but the older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, steadfastness. Then he goes after the older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good. They have a responsibility to train the young women. If you're an older woman in the faith. You have a responsibility to train the younger women in the faith, to love their husbands and children. It's a remarkable call. To be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands. That the word of God may not be reviled. See, that's our calling. Likewise, urge the younger men. And I love this, only one thing for the older men, or younger men, to be self-controlled. To be self-controlled. You get that, you got everything else with the younger men. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And then he even goes after the bond servants. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. Paul does not advocate slavery, but there's something more important than our earthly station. All right, in life, and that is adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. They're to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn. Who is they? The older men, the older women, the younger women, the younger men, the slaves, so that they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. And now Paul gives us the reason you should teach the Christians to behave in such a way. For the grace of God has appeared. All of this can be summarized by... Grace, which is a person, appearing. Now, that word appeared was used in classical Greek of the day to refer to the dawn of daybreak. And I find that greatly encouraging, especially in this uniquely dark year. It has been, I know from my own personal life, the most challenging year since I've been alive, and perhaps that's been the case for you as well, I find this verb so encouraging because what this verb tells us in these perilous times is that there is no darkness too dark for daybreak. The grace of God has appeared. As we read earlier, the light John 1.5 has come into the world. It shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The light is undefeated against the darkness. And this grace has appeared in a person. And that's why I love this quotation from Carl F.H. Henry. I think it is a really apt statement for our times and for our church. The early church did not say, look what the world is coming to. They said, look what has come into the world. It's a wonderful statement for us all. Now that verb appeared is only found 10 times in the New Testament. Four times, it refers to Christ's first advent, what we celebrate at Christmas. Six times it refers to his return, and he is returning. And so the the verb's found 10 times, four to refer to the first advent, six to refer to his return, his second advent, and interestingly enough, this verb is found twice in our passage. One to refer to the first advent, and one to refer to to the second event, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, before we can appreciate the good news of the gospel, and I think you know this by experience. I certainly know this by experience. The gospel for me, until I understood the bad news, was like Charlie Brown's teacher. It was just background. It was like elevator music. Before you can really understand and appreciate and delight in the good news of the gospel of grace, the advent of Christ, we have to understand the bad news. And we have to own it. Pierce was not converted until he came to own his sin. And here's the bad news. We were created for one purpose. You have one job. And that is to worship and glorify God. But our sin has replaced the worship of God for the worship of self. Paul makes that clear in 2 Corinthians 5. In our unredeemed state, we live for ourselves. Because of our sin, we have replaced submission with self rule, we have replaced gratitude with demands for more. And we have replaced vertical joy with horizontal envy. Vertical joy for horizontal envy. Paul Tripp in his book, Awe, says this. We demand that others serve our agenda. We curse whatever gets in our way We strike back when we think we've been wronged. We live to satisfy our cravings. And when the love of self, self self-worship rules, you can't help yourself. You're in a situation where you cannot help yourself. You are guilty and corrupt, and one of the fruits of that is the total inability to help yourself. Christianity is not a self-help religion. We're like the person in quicksand who's trying to pull himself or herself out unless God intervenes. Unless God intervenes and Christmas says that he has. God's grace in his son Jesus Christ, notice in the second part of verse 11, is bringing... Salvation for all people. Now, if you take a verse out of context, you could could make the argument that he's saying that everyone's going to be saved in the end, but there's a whole lot of other text in the scripture, and in including Paul's own writings, where it makes clear, he makes clear that not everyone will be saved. Only those who repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. That's why we have to do missions. These groups in the amazon unless they bow the knee to king jesus will not be saved in the end but given the context he's talking about all classes of people older men older women younger women younger men slave and freedmen he is bringing salvation do you realize that christianity in its purest form that is Sola Scriptura. Uh, Christianity, as revealed in Scripture alone, is the only religion that teaches that God saves. It's the only religion that teaches that. Now, a lot of Christians are scared to use the word religion. I get it. They're, they're, they're scared to use the word religion to describe our faith because of the baggage Of that word. It's actually a good word, though. It's derived from a Latin root that means regathered. Did you know that? It's from a Latin root that means regathered. But it's become an unfortunate word because all other religions teach that the way this regathering occurs is by human merit. And that's why it's become an unfortunate word. Christmas teaches us, more importantly the word of God teaches us, that the regathering between God and man is all of grace. It's because God is a saving God. It's not God helping those who helps themselves. We can't help ourselves. It is God intervening and interrupting our sin stained Existence as God's saving grace in His Son Jesus Christ. And what did Jesus do? He came as our substitute to live in the place of, you, of, of, of everyone who would trust in Him. He fulfilled all righteous requirements of the law, He obeyed God in your place. And then on the cross, He satisfied God's just and righteous wrath on our sin. In our place. He was raised from the grave in our place. And in God's saving grace in his son, as it comes to bear on our sin and on our brokenness, and let's, let's admit, we're all broken, our sins are forgiven. Our lives are reconciled to God. Our marriages are restored churches are revived, and the awe of God is renewed. That's what the saving grace of God does for the one who believes. Now, remember, this word salvation, it, it, it's a word that communicates three tenses of salvation. So in one sense, we are saved in the past at at the moment we repent of our sin, and you have to repent of your sin, you can't come to God on your terms. You come to Him on His terms. The moment you repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, you are saved from the penalty of sin. And, and that can never change. That your record can never change. That is, your, your record has been secured by the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if someone asks you if you've been saved you can legitimately say if you're a believer, I have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ but there's another tense of salvation where we are being saved. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 1 where he talks about the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing but to those who are being saved is the power of God and what Paul means by that is that we are being conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a work of God's free grace, okay? Whereas our past tense salvation is an act of God's free grace, this is a work of God's free grace where we are renewed in the whole man according to the image of Christ and are enabled more and more to die to sin, and to live to righteousness. And so in one sense, you could say, I've been saved, in another sense, I'm being saved, but salvation is also a destiny. It's It's a destination. I will be saved in glory fully, where I will never sin again. Well, in this case, the emphasis is on sanctification. Yes, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation, but notice he's writing to Christians. This is clearly a letter to Christians. And so the context are the believing older men, the believing older women, the believing younger women, the believing younger men, and the believing slaves. So the emphasis here is on our sanctification. And notice in verse 12 what this grace does in Jesus, training us, To renounce ungodliness, you see, you still have the remnants of the old self, the old Adam, that is still present. And so, what the grace of God in Christ does is it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now, so Paul personifies this grace. Grace is a person, Jesus Christ. Now grace the Savior becomes grace the trainer. He trains us, okay? And so the question that Paul is addressing here, and it's a vital question. Let me tell you, I I grew up with, and I've told you this before, and it really devastated me hearing this. I grew up believing that you could be saved by Jesus, and it not change your life. You could have him as Savior and not Lord. I grew up with that. I heard it preached in pulpits. I sat at a table in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. One month after I was converted, and a man named Zane Hodges, who was invited to the church I was attending, said at that table and at that conference that you could have him as Savior and not Lord. Lordship was a matter of discipleship. It's not a matter of salvation. And that is so foreign to what the scripture says about salvation. You can't have him Savior and not Lord. He is Lord. You don't get to pick and choose whether he's Lord. He is Lord. If you come to Christ as Savior, you're coming to him on his terms. And notice, if that grace has taken effect, here's what this grace does. It trains us. It trains us to do do certain things. One of the most fundamental principles for understanding the gospel is that grace and godliness must never be separated. Grace and godliness must never be celebrated. That's why a man named Canon Aiken was correct 140 years ago in 1880 in his book, The School of Grace, when he said, grace... Not only saves, but undertakes our training. I love that. Grace undertakes our training. And so all true Christians become learners in the school of grace. We're all as believers in the school of grace. And we will not graduate until glory. Until we die or Christ returns. So what does this grace teach? What does it do to train us? Well, there's two lessons. First, there's a negative lesson, and secondly, there's a positive lesson. The negative lesson is that grace trains us to renounce. Let me just tell you, this is a daily battle. This is a daily moment-by-moment work. This grace teaches us, trains us to renounce ungodliness And worldly passions. Now, what is ungodliness? It's a refusal to worship God as God. Romans 1 although they knew God as God, they did not glorify Him as God. It's when the glory of God is not admired, it's when the greatness of God isn't honored. It's when the person of God is not loved. It's when the presence of God is not prized and the power of God not praised. It's when the wisdom of God is not esteemed and the holiness of God is not reverenced. It's when the grace of God is not cherished. It's when the goodness of God is not savored. It's when the truth of God is not sought and the faithfulness of God not believed. That's what it means to be ungodly. And the word of God, the grace of God in Jesus Christ comes to bear and trains us to treasure, to prize, to praise, to savor, to cherish, to trust, to obey. That's what the grace of God in Jesus Christ is doing in every true believer. But as well, the grace of God trains us to renounce worldly passions. What are worldly passions? They are inordinate desires set on worldly things. That's worldliness. It's the sleepiness of soul, dullness of the soul, in which the status, the cares, the pleasures, and the comforts of this world appear stunning and real, while the truths of Scripture become abstractions, unable to grip your heart. That's what worldliness is, but because of the advent of grace in Jesus Christ, worldly passion and ungodliness has no place in the new world that Jesus Christ has ushered in by his resurrection from the grave and is presently reigning over at the right hand of God. That's why I love this statement from George Swinock in the 17th century. He said, if the world smiles on him, who's him? The one who is renouncing worldly passions. If the world smiles on him... The godly man does not trust it. It may give him its treasures, but he does not give it his heart. When his prosperity abounds, he abounds in thanksgiving to God and in a a desire to use his wealth rightly, not just to get more. If the world frowns on him, he sees it as an opportunity to kill his love for the world like putting out a fire by withdrawing its fuel. Isn't that a good word? The grace of God has come in Jesus Christ, instructing us, training every believer to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. But positively, notice the grace of God trains us for active godliness. Notice, to live. To live self-controlled lives. Now, what is self-control? This regards my relation to myself. It's it's self-mastery in Christ by the Spirit. It's self-restraint. Self-control is discipline towards ultimate things. That is, I recognize what is ultimate and what is ultimately important and I am disciplined to, towards those ultimate things. I don't waste my time with frivolous things, things that won't make me happy on my deathbed. It's self control, discipline towards ultimate things, and it's self denial toward things that are sinful and antithetical to adorning the gospel of our Savior. This is the fifth time, as I said, that, that this word has been mentioned self control. We need to be known by our self-control, the way we carry ourselves in in every arena that God has entrusted to us. If you are known by your self-control, it will reflect itself in the way you interact with others in person or on social media. Notice as well, it it trains us, this grace, to live uprightly, so if self-control concerns my relation to myself. Uprightness concerns my relation to other people. Having been delivered from our God-ignoring, blasphemous ways, that was our natural state, God's grace in Jesus Christ shows us his way to live with and to love others. That's what it means to be upright, which means I am committed to your name. I'm committed to not betraying your name and your reputation. I'm committed to not sinning against you in word or deed, either to your face or behind your back. Why? Because the grace of God has come to bear on my heart. I, a sinner, deserve judgment from God, and he forgave me instead. And now that's how I love, and that's how I live with other people. Notice as well, it trains us not only to to live self-controlled and upright, but also godly. That's my relation to God. That's my relation to God and his glory and his will. You know, the natural relationship between humanity and God is the heresy, um, and they, they use the Latin phrase often back in the day, du ut des, I give that you may give. That, that's every other religion in the world. I give that you may give. I, I will live a good life so that you will give me what I want, so that you'll give me uh, security after I die. Eternal life after I die. Well, that's a heresy. It's backwards. I give because he gave. I give because he gave. My giving, my service, my love, my holiness is the fruit because he gave in his son, Jesus Christ. In the grace of Advent, God is ours. God comes to us in his son. And in our response to this grace of Advent, we are his. That's what Paul is saying. And note he says, in this present age. This present age began at the fall. When sin entered the world, this present age began when Adam, our covenant head, rebelled against God. And this present age will continue and extend to the time of Christ's return. The age to come, though, began in Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And so you, we live in the overlap of the ages with Christ's resurrection. And that age to come will extend to all eternity. And that's why I want to invest my life that I have, a short life, all of us have short lives. I want to invest my life in the age that has no termination day. Not in the present age that we are being delivered from. Galatians 1 verse 4. And it's an age to come that really is our hope. John speaks of it this way in Revelation 21. It's an age when every fear Be taken away, wiped away. Death shall be no more. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. The former things will have passed away. And that brings us to verse 13. A hope that will be consummated, fully realized when Christ returns. Notice me in verse 13. So we've seen the saving grace of God okay, motivates us to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, but as well, the second advent, the second coming of Christ motivates us to adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Notice we'll be in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope. I love that. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Martin Luther said there were two days on his calendar, this day and that day. And this day is preparing us for that day. This day, the grace of God in Jesus Christ is at work training us for that day. And part of that training is that grace teaches us to wait. We're waiting and we're waiting. But grace teaches us to wait on the right things. We generally wait for issues that are only of temporal importance. Waiting for the blessed hope, that modifies the verb in verse 12, to live. That's what it means. We live in light of that. Do you think it would inform your life if you lived in light of Christ's return? Waiting reminds that the Christian life, man, we've learned that this year, haven't we? is one of patient endurance in a world opposed. And let me just tell you, it's going to get more opposed. I believe that. I believe in our country, it will be more opposed. As we move, it appears at this moment, to a more Marxist, atheistic, progressive, leftist worldview, we will be more opposed. But what will inform us In the midst of that, the grace of God training us and the second advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice he says the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. Again, Jesus is God. This is one of those texts that clearly communicates that Jesus is the eternal God because only God can save us from our sins. And that brings us to verse 14. How does he save us from our sins? He gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He gave himself for us. How did he do that? He he entered Our accursed situation, he took it upon himself to enter that accursed situation. And in so doing, he took us out of our self-earned hopeless peril. Paul says there's three intended results of him giving himself. Let's just go through these quickly. To relieve us from every lawless deed. So when God saves you, he doesn't just save you from the penalty of your lawless deeds. He saves you to deliver you from your lawless deeds. Second, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He saved you to make you pure. He cleansed you. So that you might be possessed by God himself. And then third, zealous for good works. I've seen a whole lot of zeal recently that's not necessarily zeal for good works. But let me speak to this zeal for a moment before we close. The greatest picture of this zeal I read in a book called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. Ryle. And here's what he said about this zeal. This zeal is a burning desire to please God and to advance his glory in the world in every possible way. Honestly, I want us to be known more about that than our politics. I'm not saying politics aren't important. I I, I am a true blue, thoroughgoing conservative. And it, it grieves me that we, this president, we, I, I, I don't want to be known by our politics. I want us to be known for our zeal, for the glory of God. That's where change comes. It is a desire no man feels by nature, but which the Holy Spirit puts in the heart of every believer when he is converted. It's not natural to us. It is natural that we be zealous, and so we're all zealous about something. But this zeal that Ryle is speaking of is grace-planted, okay? It's grace-fueled. He says, "...but which some believers feel so much more strongly than others, that they alone deserve to be called zealous men and women." This desire is so strong when it really reigns in a man that it impels him to make any sacrifice if only he can please God and honor Christ. A zealous man in religion, he's using religion in the truest sense, is preeminently a man of one thing, a woman of one thing. He only sees one thing. He cares for one thing. He lives for one thing. He is swallowed up in one thing. That one thing is to please God. He feels like a lamp. He is made to burn for God. Such a one will always find a sphere for his zeal. I love that. He burns for God. She burns for God. He or she is so zealous because God's grace has come to bear. Training towards zeal that this person will find a sphere for that zeal. If he can't preach, work, and give money, he will cry. Sigh and pray. That's the zeal, I believe, that Paul is referring to here when it says the grace of God has come as we wait for this blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us, to purify himself, a people who are zealous for good works. And notice how he says at the end, verse 15, He says, this is so important, Titus. Declare these things. Declare these things. You don't graduate from these things. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you, because they may, if that's what you preach. So as we close here, I would like to ask you, to do a self-revaluation, I've had to do this all week. I've had to live in this passage all week. It's been convicting, as much as it is converting, uh, comforting. What impact has the grace of Christ's first advent had on you? On your private life, on your marriage, on your parenting, on the way you interact? with your brothers and sisters at church, with your neighbors, with people who have a different ideology than you. That's been particularly convicting for me. What impact has the grace of God? Would people know you as a person of grace, as a recipient of grace? You know, it was impossible Utterly impossible for Ernest Gordon to remain the same after his friend stepped forward and took the death in the place of the other prisoners. It was impossible. And as much as that might move you, as it moved me, it pales in comparison to the grace of Advent. Advent. And now, having received that grace, grace becomes our marching orders. That's our call. And if you've never received that grace, your call is to repent of your sin and to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation as Lord, as Savior, as King. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage. Lord... It would be impossible for me to to preach in a manner that utterly comports with the glory of this passage. I pray that in the imperfections of this message, that the perfect word of God would come to bear on every listener's heart this morning. May the grace of God inform what we renounce and what we live for. And we ask these things in the name, the matchless name of our Lord Jesus Christ, grace of God incarnate. Amen.